The scripture reading today, as we start off a new series, comes from the gospel according to Luke, and I'll be reading from chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, and we're going to be covering this over the next two weeks. It's a dense passage, um, a familiar story if you've grown up in the church, but I hope that it becomes something new and fresh uh, in the soul as it brings us Uh, to worship of our God and Father. Verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out, go back to my father, And say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is God's word. We're beginning a new series on the values of our church. And we're going to be looking at uh, the engine then, five core values that power our church, which means if you really want to get to know better, uh, Metro better, if you really want to plug into Metro as a community more, you need to be more intimate with these core values. And so we're going to start by entering into a seven-week period of looking at the foundational pillar on which all of our other core values rest, and that's the gospel. What is the gospel? And this passage models, at least for me, Uh, like no other passage that I can think of, the heart and soul of what the gospel is. Now, I'm going to start by saying 
giving us the context. In verse 1, it's not printed in your bulletins, but in verse 1, it's, the text says that the tax collectors and the sinners, they gathered around Jesus. And the Pharisees were there too, the Pharisees and the teachers of law, and they were grumbling. They're grumbling because they see Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus tells three parables, three parables about lostness. The parable of lost sheep, he talks about the lost coin, and then he goes into the lost son. And the tax collectors and sinners, they are what we call the irreligious people uh, in the area. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the religious people. And we know, it's no surprise, religious people and irreligious people, they tend to be antithetical to each other. Jesus here is speaking to both. They're all in his presence here. We got the, we got the, uh, the tax collectors and sinners. We got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus here, he's speaking to both of them, which means that whether you're irreligious or religious, this lesson that we're about to share over the next two weeks, it's for everybody. This narrative begins here in verses 11 to 12. And how does it start? You have a father and you've got two sons. And by the way, growing up, I heard and learned this text in a very, very different way, which is why I think it's super important for us to be able to look at this text again and really, really look at what Jesus is saying here. You have a father and you have two sons. And the younger son asks the father for his share of the estate. Now, in a typical Jewish uh, community, in a Jewish estate, especially among the wealthy, the father's wealth is centralized around the elder son because of the principle of what we call primogeniture in those days. The elder son gets the lion's share of the estate, the lion's share of the wealth. The wealth is centralized, which means the hope and the love is centralized around the elder son, and he gets to dictate then how that wealth gets distributed. But one thing's for sure is that you never ask the father. I mean, the, yeah, there's two sons here. The elder son gets the lion's share. The younger son will get a portion in many ways. Sometimes it's 60-40. Sometimes it's even, uh, the gap is even wider than that. But you never ask for your share of the estate. You never ask for it. Because think about it. To ask for your share of the estate ahead of time is to say this. I want my inheritance right now. Which means what? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I can go on and live my life. To ask for your share is to say, I want the blessing of the inheritance. The blessing of what it means to be called your son, but I don't want, to, I don't want you to be my father. I don't want you. I want the blessing of being in relationship with you, but I don't want you. Our relationship is simply a means to an end. Now, in ancient times, if you were a younger son asking for your share of the estate, you could have been kicked out of the estate for this. You could have been kicked out of the house. But this is amazing. The younger son is not kicked out of the house. In fact, the father actually honors his request. Now, you got to remember, a parable is a story that has several components and most of those components, the main points, will usually shock the listener in their day. So as Jesus is telling the story, knowing that the father actually honors the request of this younger son, that would have absolutely shocked the people in their day. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are listening. They're just shocked. Verse 12, the father divides the estate between his two sons. Literally in the Greek, the word property or estate here uh, is the word bios. Because there's a very intimate relationship, a very organic relationship between a man and his property. Every bit as much as a man and his own sons. Because sons and property back then determined a man's wealth. 
And so the father is dividing his bios, which is to say he's splitting up his life. He's tearing his life apart. The younger son is literally asking the father that I want you to tear your life apart for me. And the father actually does it. He actually does it. His heart is being ripped apart because he is enduring in that moment the worst thing that the father can endure. And that is the departure of his son by his own choice. It's one thing to lose your son by an accident. But this is the son betraying the father. This is a son rejecting his father. This is his treasure. The father treasures the son. His wealth is literally measured in part by his sons. Look at the grace of the father. He just divides his life. Whatever he can do for his son. Whatever he can do to empower his son. Verse 13, this younger son then leaves home. He goes to a foreign country. He goes to a distant country. And there he wastes all of his money through wild living. And which means it probably took a little bit of time, but then a famine hits. And now this younger son is in a foreign land and he's got no wealth left. He's got no friends around him. He's got no family because he's in a distant land and he's got no food. But then in verse 17, we see something amazing happen. He's in the mud with these pigs and there he comes to his senses. The text literally says, he came to himself. It's almost like he had like an outer body of experience and now he's come back to himself. And he realizes where he is. This is not his home. He doesn't belong here. He realizes who he is. He is his father's son. He is a son. And so verses 18 to 20, he says, I'm gonna go back to my father. And he has it all planned out. He has all scripted out. I'm gonna return home and I'm gonna confess to my father. And he's, I'm gonna say, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Hire me. I will work for you. In other words, I'm going to earn my way back into your good graces. I'm going to earn my way back into the father's house. But what happens? And this is almost like the punchline that would have knocked all the, those who are listening off their feet. The father, as the son is making his way back, probably tattered. He's got nothing left. He's got no shoes, right? He's sold off just about everything he has. He's wearing tattered clothing, if he's wearing clothing at all. And he's, he's walking back to the father and the father sees the son from far off, which means that the father has been waiting and waiting and waiting day and night, standing at the driveway, trying to see as far out as he can. And he finally sees a glimpse of his son. And there he runs to his son. Now in ancient Near East culture, a father would never run. It was too undignified of an act for the father to run to his son, right? But here, what do you see? The father, he runs. He doesn't care. He embraces his son. His son is filthy. He embraces his son. His son is smelly. He embraces his son. He knows he's going to get dirty. He knows he's going to get smelly. And he kisses his son. Now, you got to imagine everyone around Jesus hearing this story, this parable. They're gasping at this story. And then Jesus continues. The younger son begins his script, and it's going according to plan. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Boom, he's cut off. The father says, quick, get him the best robe. He never gets to finish his proposal. He never even enters into his negotiation with the father. Quick, get the best robe. 
In other words, I'm not going to wait for you to get all cleaned up. I'm not going to wait for you to be in a good place before I hear you out. I'm not going to be in a, uh, I'm not going to wait for you to earn your way back in. You are naked. I'm going to clothe you. You don't have, your feet are tired. I'm going to give you shoes. I'm going to give you sandals. You've lost your honor. You've lost your dignity. I'm going to give you a ring. You are a son in my house and you are hungry. So I'm going to throw you a feast. What's the point of this parable? Jesus is saying that there is no dignity that God himself will not give up to run to find his child. And there are three things that we're going to learn from this that are going to shape, one, your view of God, two, your view of what it means to be lost, and lastly, what it means to be found. Your view of God, what it means to be lost, what it means to be found. First, this narrative shapes our view of God. Very short uh, but poignant point here, God is our father. In the Muslim tradition, uh, in the Muslim Quran, there are 400 words to describe God. Not one of them refer to God as a father. You see, we're taught to view God as our creator. We're taught to view God as a king. We're taught to fear God as a patriarch and he's wrathful. But if you look at this text, here's the father. Here's the father. And from the beginning, he endures emotional betrayal. And yet, he's gracious. This is a man with power. This is a man with just a symbol of majesty. And yet, you see him loving. You see him suffering. And even beyond the overt suffering, there's a, there's a quiet suffering that he's enduring. You see him betrayed. You see him sacrificing. You see him always longing for his son. So gracious, so loving. You see him embracing and kissing his son. No one's ever described God like that. No religion has ever described God like that. Not a Muslim, not a Hindu, not a Buddhist, not, not, a, not even a Jewish understanding of God. God is our Father, loving, embracing Suffering, betrayed, sacrificing, longing, searching, finding. Secondly, it redefines our view of lostness. In the younger son, we see a very traditional view of sin. Uh, insulting your elders, carousing with prostitutes, self-indulgent, dirty. But uh, we, we, we're going to go into this more next week. Both the younger and the elder son together show a very radical view of what it means to be lost, what, it, what sin is. Why? Because both sons wanted uh, the father's stuff. They wanted his property. They wanted his wealth. But they didn't want the father. And we're going to go into the elder son later because I was taught growing up that the younger son is bad and the elder son was good. We should be like the elder son. But the reality is that both sons wanted the father one of the father's things, they didn't want the father. And the elder son all the more shows a very, very different dimension that actually I never saw uh, a, a while back until not too long ago. And it just completely revolutionizes our view of what sin is. Both the elder and the younger son used the father to get what they really wanted at the cost of the father. Both of them wanted to indulge. Both of them wanted status and wealth and power. Both of them wanted to be accepted by the father. The younger one, he does it. He wants to be accepted, but he says, you know what? I'm going to reject the father. I'm going to go off and I'm going to do it by doing bad things. I'm going to get it by doing bad things. But if you look at the text, both sons are lost. 
The younger son, because he left home. The elder son, because he stayed. The younger son, because he, he was bad. But the elder son, because he was good. The younger son, because he was selfish and he splurged on his own with wild living. But the elder son, because he obeyed. You see? Religious and moral people, they say the problem with the world is the immoral people out there. The world is full of younger sons. They're immoral, they're disrespectful, they're hedonistic. But the irreligious, they say, well, the problem with the world is that it's filled with elder sons. They're hypocrites, they're self-righteous people, judgmental and angry. The reality is, Jesus is saying, both are lost. Both comprise the definition of sin because both of them are using the Father for things both of them are using the Father in a way to control and live their own lives. And the irony is, the actual irony is, it's the bad son that comes back. It's the bad son that actually gets the music. It's the bad son that gets the feast. We're not really even sure what the good son actually does. The story ends open-ended. It's a remarkable definition of lostness. The good son is lost because of his goodness. You know, he says, I never disobeyed you. I always served you. He uses the word, I slaved over you. Now, we're going to go into this next week, but imagine the listener. Imagine the Pharisees. Imagine the teachers of the law. Jesus is talking about them. That's amazing. But imagine the tax collector and the sinner. What an invitation. What an invitation for them to return home. They never saw God like this. They never saw God could be like a father, inviting and seeking and searching after them. Jesus says, both sons are wrong. Both sons are lost. And notice, he doesn't say the gospel is then the middle of both lifestyles. You can't be good, you can't be bad, you gotta be in the middle. He doesn't say that, and don't mistake that. We oftentimes think that it's, it's, the, it's in between. And don't also mistake it as a pendulum going back and forth. Well, I was good, now I've got to become bad. I was bad, now I've got to become good. I want, I want to reach some sort of equilibrium. It's, the gospel is not that either. Jesus is saying here, if you look at both sons and who they are, and that's us, we're both sons. They are both distant from the father and they are both lost. But the younger son, he gets the robe, he gets the ring, he gets the sandals, he gets the feast. Why? Verse 17, he came to his senses. In that moment, he was starting to realize that he sinned against the father, that he betrayed the father, that he rejected the father, that he's been looking for a home when he had the greatest home. He was looking for a love when he had the greatest love. You see, he's been looking for a home where there was no home. And so because of that, he was homeless. He realized he was lost and, he's, and, and, and that he was living like an orphan. What is an orphan? An orphan is somebody who has no father. He was living like he had no, no father. And yet, so he was living like he was homeless. What a sin. Sin is being far from the father. Sin is leaving home and living like an orphan. How do you know? How do you know that you've left home? And unfortunately for most of us, the famine hits. That's when you realize it. When something happens... You're on your way, you're on this journey, and you, you have this plan, you have a strategy, and it's completely void of the Father. In fact, we heard that in the testimony earlier today. Completely void of the Father. The Father's absent from your plans. And then something happens to completely throw you off your track, throw you off your plan, and now you're empty, and you're alone, and you're isolated. You're lonely. You've got nothing. You're hungry. And you're hungry. And then this younger son, he realizes, I'm a son. He's been longing for the food that the pigs have been eating. 
what does that tell you about sin? Sin always promises. Sin always comes with a glorious promise to increase your options and potential and freedom and joy. That is going to make you more of a human, but always ends up decreasing your options, potential joy and freedom. And you end up becoming less human. How do you become human again? You have to come to your senses. The son wakes up and realizes, I am my father's son. And I'm going to go back to him. He had a very flawed view of the father. We're going to get into this. But his view of the father was enough to know that he will take me back. He will take me back. What does this text teach us then about what it means to be found? Because we talked about the father. We talked about uh, lostness. What does it mean? Uh, what does it teach us about being found? One, look at the repentance of the younger son. The younger son's got this plan. This is how I'm going to get back into my father's family. That's us. When we're distant from God, we think about repentance about, uh, as, as doing things to earn acceptance again. I was living a bad life, so naturally what we do is I'm going to do things to get back into father's good graces again. I'm going to start going back to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. That's the first thing we start to do. I'm going to start praying. And those are all good things. Christianity isn't less than that. It's so much more than that. Those things are, are really instruments and tools used to bring us what? Back into the Father's house in many ways. Help us to understand the Father. A language to speak to the Father. But oftentimes we tend to do things to earn. You do those things to earn our way back into the Father's uh, embrace. Because we think that sin is just about bad things, doing bad things, acts. And so in a sense, the younger son, to get back into the house, he thinks the way to get back in, essentially, is to become like the elder brother. Because he has good deeds. The younger son had bad deeds. I'm going to be like the elder brother who has good deeds. To obey, to be good, to work your way back in. Then I'm going to get paid. But remember, Jesus is teaching that both sons are lost. The younger brother approaches the father. The father runs over to him, embraces him, kisses him. And the younger brother begins his repentance, but he gets cut off. He never finishes his proposal. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Then he gets cut off. He never gets to make his proposal. Now listen, it was never about Christianity. It was never about good works and bad works. A Christian repents of his desire to be his own savior. A Christian repents of his desire to pursue his own happiness apart from God. A Christian repents of his own desire, whether it's by doing bad things or by doing good things, to live a life that's self-sufficient apart from God so he doesn't need God anymore in, in many ways. Either he's going to overtly reject the father or he's going to work to earn the father's acceptance. That's the way he's going to get the father off his back. You see that? That's the way that he can find happiness and joy. Now, if you're working to earn the acceptance of God, if you're working to earn your way back into God and you're just doing things, in a way, you're striking a business deal because then God owes you. Then God has to pay you. That's why the son says, Father, I slaved for you and you never even gave me this. You see that? You got to let go of your acts. You got to let go of the deeds. Christianity isn't less than deeds, but it's so much more than deeds. It's a relationship. 
You gotta let go of your acts. You gotta let go of your negotiation. You gotta let go of the proposals. Look at the younger son. He wakes up, he goes home, and as he goes home, he's embraced. And that leads us to the grace of the father. Look at the grace of the father. The father rushes to the younger son. He runs to the younger son. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. He celebrates his son. The son barely repents. So it's not the repentance that triggers the embrace. It's not the repentance that triggers the kiss. It's the kiss that triggers the repentance. If you look at the chronology here, the father embraces, the father kisses, and then the son starts the embrace. It's the kindness of the father that leads to the repentance. Now, we may not have words. We may be terrified. We may feel like we have nothing to offer or not have much to offer. It's okay. This son, what did he have to offer? This son, what did he have to his name? This is an invitation to come home. This is Jesus' invitation through a very intimate story for us to be able to plug into that story as a younger son. And it's his way of saying, the father is waiting and looking and seeking and finding you, beckoning you to come home. It's an amazing thing. Even to the elder son at the end of the story, I mean, he's lost. We said he's just as lost, maybe even more lost. And Jesus tells this religious person, what does he tell us in the story? The father runs out to the other son. The other son is so angry. He says, I want you to come in. Come inside. It's an invitation. Come inside and celebrate. It's not that he likes the younger son better than the older son. He says, my younger son was dead. Now he's alive. I'm inviting you in to celebrate as well. Look at the father. I mean, he's just absolutely insulted by both sons. And yet he's so gracious, so good, so faithful. So inviting. But it comes at a cost. And so lastly, we're going to look at what it cost to bring the son in. Remember, when the father divided up his estate, that's what we see in the beginning of this passage. The younger son got one share. That means that everything else belonged to the elder son. The father's inheritance was blown away, pretty much squandered away by this younger son. So whatever the fa- whatever's left doesn't even belong to the father anymore. He's bankrupted by this relationship. Anything more that he gives belongs to the elder son. Anything more that he gives, it comes at the cost. That means that the elder son will have less than what he was originally given or promised. It comes at a sacrifice. But the father spares no expense. And he says, give him the best robe. Whose robe is it? Give him the ring. Whose ring is it? Give him the sandals. Whose sandal is it? Give him the calf. Where did the money for the party come from? Whose money was it? When he speaks to the elder son, it's the last verse. He says, everything I have is yours. And he's literally, that's what exactly, it's literally true. Because when the father divided up his estate, everything that was left belonged to the elder son. And that's why, you know, the younger son, he's brought back at great cost. All this stuff is being given to the younger son, just as if, He'd obeyed just as if he'd always been there all along. And it's why the elder son is so angry because he says, this guy left and you're treating him like he always stayed. I'm the one who always stayed and what did I ever get in return? That's what he says. He insults and he mocks the father, mocks the younger son because of his anger. Why did Jesus give us this picture of this terrible elder brother? Because he's showing on one hand to the younger sons, right, to the, to, the, to the tax collectors and the sinners, he's showing them, this is what you look like. You look like the younger son. But he's showing the Pharisees what they look like in the elder son. Judging, self-righteous, 
what does a true elder brother look like? A good elder brother would go out on behalf of his father, leave his home, take all the time that he needs to look and search and find his younger son, the younger brother. He would go at the cost of his own life. He would sacrifice his time and energy, maybe even safety, whatever he can to save this brother that he loves. This younger brother, he didn't have that kind of brother. He didn't have a brother like that. But we do. Jesus Christ is the true elder brother. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, brothers. He calls us brothers. Jesus Christ didn't leave a worldly estate to find us. He left a heavenly estate. He didn't just search for us at the cost of his wallet. He searched for us at the cost of his life. He is the wealth. Literally, the Father's wealth was Christ. Father, God's wealth is Christ himself. Christ is the treasury, and yet the treasury was expound, expensed. The treasury was, was, was uh, exhausted for our sake. Remember that hymn? It's one of my favorite hymns. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, and emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left home, not to distance himself from the Father, but because he was so intimate with Father, to bring us, to bring us back, we who were so distant from the Father. He searches for us in our famine, in our darkness and aloneness and despair. Remember, Jesus Christ was in the wilderness, 40 days. There was no food. It was like a famine. He was hungry. He was homeless. And that was the beginning of his ministry. It represented his ministry. And he didn't just sacrifice a robe or a ring or sandals or a calf. He sacrificed his honor and his status and his identity and his kingliness and authority and wealth and power and glory. In fact, Philippians 2, the author, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked. This young, younger brother probably came home. He was probably naked or almost naked. Jesus Christ was stripped naked and on the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, he became sin so that we would be clothed in his righteousness. That means that everything that belonged to him became ours. Jesus Christ was the son, and now we become sons because he became sin when we were sin and lost. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying there is, I am lost. I'm lost. The ultimate distance from the Father. And so he who deserved the honor, now we get the honor. He who deserved the acceptance, we get the acceptance. He who deserved the home, we get the home. He who deserved the father, he says, I've lost the father so that we could have the father. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the crux of the gospel. The younger son got the ring. Jesus, Jesus Christ got the crown of thorns. The younger son got the sandals for his feet. Jesus Christ got nails for his feet. And yet, do you know, he did it with joy. Hebrews chapter 12 says he did it for the joy that was set before him. The gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ suffered the cosmic hunger, 
the cosmic famine on the cross, the rejection of God. He was disowned by God. The cross was the one time where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father. Why? Jesus Christ was disowned so that we could be owned, so we could be called sons. And to the degree that you believe that, everything else in your life, no matter how good a blessing it is, will be a famine compared to being intimate and knowing the Father, being intimate and knowing Jesus. When you see that Jesus Christ sacrificed his treasure so that you could have treasure, Jesus becomes your treasure. And you will go to the Father through Jesus. You will run to the Father. And there you will get the robe. And you will get the ring. And you will get the sandals. And you will get the feast, the celebration of a lifetime. Joy. This is an invitation for those of us who have been distant from the Father during this period to be able to come back. Come to your senses. Let's pray.